Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Metsed Up listeners? We are back here for episode number 42 of the Metsed Up podcast. Of course, I'm your co-host, Draftneck Mark. Mark Luino here with James Schiano. Jeter had no range talking about the New York Mets series against the San Francisco Giants this week. Little West Coast trip after the horrid series against the Los Angeles Dodgers. This one could have gone really, really bad. Now, it didn't go well, but it didn't go as bad as it could have. So I will take that as my little glimmer of hope, my little sliver of happiness here, but it is feeling a little hopeless here in Mets land because we lost two of three to San Francisco. We are three and a half, four and a half back of the Atlanta Braves right now. It's not feeling great. It's not looking good. And it doesn't really look like it's going to get better much soon. A lot happened in this series that was super disappointing. A lot of good things to take out from the pitching side as always. But as we've talked about all year long, the hitting, it's become an issue even more so recently but it continued to be an issue here in San Francisco. So we're going to talk about every single game in depth here. I'm figuring some of you didn't even watch these games because you're like, it's a 945 starts on the West Coast. I got to work the next day. Not worth my time. So this is the spot for you to listen, to watch along as well if you want to watch it. YouTube.com, look up the Metz Up podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Metz Up. Follow James. I already said follow James. Jeter had no range. Me, Giraffe, Neck, Mark. And also listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. A little PSA here. I'm going to give this to you guys. We need more ratings. We need more reviews on iTunes. We all know that you guys got an iPhone. Everybody has an iPhone. And if you don't, I don't know what you're doing with your life. You must hate yourself. Get on Apple Podcasts. Drop us five stars. Drop us a review. It really does help us grow. And we're currently at 80 ratings or reviews, whatever it is. If we hit 100, for those of you watching on YouTube, I will give away this Marcus Stroman game-worn memorabilia card from Topps Tribute. Stamp of approval. It's cool. You can see what game it's at. So give us a uh, rating there, and we'll give away that on Twitter. So James, perfect time, and let's bring you in here. How are you feeling? What's your thoughts after this giant series? I'm feeling okay, but I just want to apologize to all of our Android listeners to Mark real quick. It's it's a, it's a fine machine. It's an okay device, even if you use your Pixel. Don't let Mark and his iPhone hubris get the best of you. But I digress. This was a bad series, a pretty awful series. When we were texting to the, on Wednesday in about the seventh inning of the game, I said I felt dead inside. I said I felt hopeless. Yeah, I feel slightly better. Still not good. I think the game that the Mets won on Wednesday was, for lack of a better word, a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, the old, as the old baseball saying goes, it's better to be lucky than good. And the Mets were shockingly lucky. So lucky to the fact that they almost screwed it up. They were basically lucky from the first pitch. Not the first pitch, like the 15th pitch on Wednesday afternoon. But games one and two were a literal shit show. And I'm really happy to share share that with the listeners here. Yeah, let's jump right into it here. Game one of the shit shows, because there's a couple of them. It's so interesting to watch this Mets team go up against the San Francisco Giants. And this is something that from the first game, we both texted about and wanted to talk about 
how different these two teams are run, how different these teams are managed. I am not a huge Gabe Kapler guy because I typically think he micromanages and overmanages, but it seems like the Giants have put him in a scenario where he almost doesn't even really have to do much because it's so like regimented and so obvious what their plan is that he gets to make less moves, but it also is like really, really smart baseball. I know you wanted to talk about the fact that they had six guys on their bench, which is just unheard of as a Mets fan. Yeah, it's very interesting that the Giants are one of the only teams in baseball that employs a six-man bench. And that's so strange in modern baseball because every team is like pitching, pitching, pitching. We want as many pitchers as possible. We need to be careful about our workloads and make sure no one's throwing too many innings. We have to make sure we have enough pitchers to pitch. We need to make sure our matchups are okay. But the Giants don't do that. The Giants basically flip that entire scenario on his head and make sure they have all the matchups matchups and enough hitters enough players just for their lineup rather than their bullpen and they will manicure every single situation in the game so their hitters at the plate have an advantage and everyone on twitter all season accuses them of cheating says they employ black magic but really they just always have righties facing lefties and lefties facing righties and it's so annoying to play against a team that does that inning after inning game after game it really is aggravating It's very reminiscent of Rays baseball, Oakland A's baseball, just being smarter. The Giants, with a lot of the guys they have on the field, are not going to be a full, well-rounded player at some of those positions, like Lamont Wade, Darren Ruff. These guys are very much platoon-heavy, but in those platoons, they dominate the side that they go up against, and the Giants make sure that they put them in those scenarios to be facing those guys that they hit well against. So while they might not have the most talented roster, they put them in the scenarios that they get the most out of their players, which is something that you can respect as a baseball fan. Definitely, but the rest of what they do with that roster is even eerier because somehow, in some way, the Giants won multiple championships, they went through an entire rebuild, and they've managed to keep some of that core and that core still plays well. Like, it's just bizarre to watch, like, Buster Posey, Brandon Belt, and Brandon Crawford, like, making plays all over the diamond, hitting the ball, having clutch played appearances. Brandon Crawford in the field this week, this week was just a legitimate marvel. It's, like, shocking to watch him play. And, like, seeing it from afar and knowing it's happening is weird in and of itself. But actually watching these games, it becomes almost creepy that these guys are doing what they do. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just, it's so weird to see, like, Buster Posey at, like, 36, Brandon Crawford at 34, Brandon Belt at 33, Evan Longoria at 35. All these guys are almost having career seasons. Posey and Longoria, not so much, but Brandon Crawford's by far having the best season of his career. It's not even close. He made himself $30 million. Yeah, he just, he became a shortstop that is going to get decently paid next year for no. at least a couple more seasons. They signed, he signed an extension a couple weeks ago. Oh, they extended him. Yes. I didn't even know that. There you go. There we go. Yeah. So look at that. He played into making even more money. The Giants have figured something out over there, so much so that they've even surprised their own front office. I don't know if it was Farhan Zaidi or someone else in the front office there with some big, big shots up there was basically like, yeah, we thought we were going to be a good team, but we didn't think we were going to be this good because they're the best team in baseball right now. And while it's relatively close, it does feel like they're kind of just pushing themselves further and further away from everybody in the record at least. It's really hard to beat this team, even when, I mean, the Mets, not that the Mets are good playing good baseball by any means. They can't even hit the broad side of a barn right now. But even when things do go right in succession, it just literally takes a lot to get ahead of this team and stay ahead. They always have something else up their sleeve. They always have another pitcher. They always have a pinch hitter. They always have a matchup advantage. They're always in the right position on defense. It's honestly astounding, and it's really, really frustrating. And they're going to push the limits of what we've come to be used to with the Rays and the A's and the teams who 
build more of like the cheaper platoon style of team building from the analytical basis and how they're not always the most successful in the playoffs, the Giants might push that just because they have done it to such an extreme that you really have to play a near-perfect game just to defeat them, especially with the great starting pitching that they've been getting. And their ace has been Kevin Gaussman this season. Yeah, Kevin Gaussman, who pitched in Game 1 for them. It was interesting because he actually wasn't very sharp in this game. The Mets had plenty of opportunities to jump on him. I think I tweeted out uh, right from the start, the first inning, I was keeping track of how many fastballs in the heart of the zone that the Mets either fouled off, took for a strike, swung and missed, didn't hit well, didn't hit the ball well, and there was eight in the first inning. Eight in the first inning down the heart of the zone that were very, very hittable pitches that they either fouled off, swung and missed, or took. That is so shocking, and that just kind of shows you where the Mets' offense was at at the beginning of the series and kind of still is at this point, is that we're really not taking advantage of these mistakes, and Kevin Gaussman gave us all the opportunities in the first inning, just weren't able to capitalize. Definitely. Gaussman's taken a massive step back in the second half, as I referenced on the last episode. Gary and Ron were obsessed with it for the first three innings on um, Monday night, and like his ERA's been over five since the All-Star break. And this is a guy who was neck and neck with Jacob deGrom in the Cy Young conversation through April, May, and June. So this is someone who is mortal, and he he's really a strange ace. I'll call him an ace because I think he's pitched to mostly an ace level this year, the adjustments he's made. But he doesn't even own a breaking ball, which is just shocking. He's used the sliders like other times in his career and just has not been very effective. He's become, He's reached this new level as a pitcher since he simplifies repertoire and just focused on throwing his four-seam fastball and his splitter. So when a guy only throws two pitches and one of them to split, you're going to get a lot of fastballs to hit. And Gaussman's location and command were great in the first half, and that's what made him so good. But now that those have taken a step back, like there were chances to hit him, and the Mets just really couldn't do it. And it was maddening to watch the first few innings of this game. Couldn't do it. I stopped after the second inning because I was going to get depressed. I was at 14 after two innings, which is just a Christ. shocking amount of balls that should be smoked. Not just hit. Smoked. It's in the heart of the plate. There's no reason for it. Fun fact, moral of the story, Mets can't hit fastballs. Down the middle especially, can't do it. No, I can't hit anything, as we've talked about for months on this show. Can't, can't curveballs, can't hit fastballs. You just can't hit. That's where the yeah. Mets are at. Luckily, at the beginning of this game, 42-year-old Rich Hill working on six hours of sleep, if that, hopefully, was, again, just like pretty solid at the beginning of the game. But the new thing going on at Rich Hill is that he can only pitch one time through the batting order, something that we've begged the Mets to listen to for a couple starts in a row now, and they just certainly have not. My guy, uh, Chris Weber, Schwebzy on Twitter from Pitcher List, dropped a great stat in the middle of this game about Rich Hill. He has not allowed a run in the first three innings of any appearance with the Mets so far this season, but after three innings, his ERA is a clean 15 Oh my God, that's 15. horrible. How has no one in the front office or coaching staff realized that, that Rich Hill can only be a one-time-through-the-order guy? He's a glorified opener, and you have to have a reliever ready in the third or fourth inning when Rich Hill takes the mound. Have to. I think what's really interesting about that start, too, with Rich Hill, knowing this information as well, is that we called up Trevor Williams for this game as insurance for Rich Hill, so it really should have been that Rich Hill was a three-inning opener to lead to Trevor Williams to go the rest of whatever he could go. And we just didn't do that. I mean, he, he came out for the fourth, right, and gave up five straight hits, I think. Yeah, and the irony is that, just like it happens every single Rich Hill start, he came up in the top of the fourth inning with two men on. It's like, oh, why can't we just send up a pinch hitter for Rich Hill in that situation? Especially with Trevor Williams on the roster, your team not being able to hit anything, reeling after a three-game losing streak. You need to be more 
proactive and aware that this is going to happen. I understand that our pitching isn't great, so we have to like thread the needle, and we'll mention that later on in this game too. Miguel Castro's second inning was an abomination. You just have to be able to do what you have to do to get offense, coax offense out of this team. And the worst part was, during the middle of that Giants rally in uh, the, I guess that was the bottom of the fourth inning, they sent up their first pinch hitter of the game. Their first of five pinch hitters they will have u- would have used on Monday night. And you're just watching it, and you're being pinch hit to death. And every single lefty face a righty, and every single righty face a lefty. You're like, why can't we do something like this? Part of the reason is our roster isn't built that way. That's a big reason of it, and that comes a little bit on Sandy's shoulders, that some of the guys that we've chose to go after in the offseason just simply aren't the players that the Giants got. Like, they just aren't good against anybody. But it also leads into the fact of, what, we had a three, four-man bench this entire week. You talked yeah. about pinch hitting for Rich Hill. I'm sure Rojas was worried that he was going to have to pinch hit again at some point and was like, and then we have to have our backup catcher. What are we going to do? That's a huge problem for the Mets. We've talked about it all year that they love, they love to play with a short bench for some reason. It makes absolutely no sense. I can't wrap my head around it. There's only so many guys that can really pitch in a game, especially with the three batter minimum. Absolutely. And that, I feel like, is one of the reasons that the Giants have like developed this strategy of using pinch hitters rather than having multiple pitching changes like we used to see a lot with the left-handed specialists, loogies, as they were I was about called. to say... They have loogies, but for hitters. So what do we call that? We're going to come up with a terminology for that because I think that this could be our big break here. (laughs) We need a terminology for essentially what a loogie is, but as a hitter. Left-handed hitting specialist. L-H-H-S-P. The lisp? A lisp. lisp? It's a lisp. lisp. It's a lisp. lisp. The Giants team is filled with lisps. They also have... Lisps and risps. Lisps and risps. The Giants are filled with lisps and risps. And that's just because Farhan Zaidi and the Giants analysts have kind of found a market inefficiency where you, just depending on your bench, are allowed to use limitless pinch hitters. You can use a pinch hitter every single batter if you want. You're not going to, of course. But especially in a game like this where a left-handed pitcher starts and you're going to stack your lineup with all your righties, eventually you're going to end up just facing right-handed relievers because not that many teams in baseball have multiple left-handed relievers. The Mets, as we know, famously only have one. His name is Aaron Loop, and he only pitches like... He only throws 15 pitches a week because we got we got a week. We got yeah. we got to save that left elbow for the for picking up Miller lights and putting him back down. But the Giants have figured out a way to just game the system. This is what smart teams do. This is what really great general managers do. And while like the baseball fan in me and like the analytical fan in me like kind of enjoys watching it, I get so fucking mad because you just can't beat them. And right when Rich Hill came out of this game, Miguel Castro came in. The lefties just came. The, the floodgates opened and the lefties came in droves. And that's kind of what knocked us down here. We couldn't beat him. Yeah, I mean, like, Miguel Castro has been very hot and cold this year, I think, to say the least. But the Giants are not a great matchup in that they will just figure him out at some point. They will just make it hell for him. And we saw that. He had a decent first inning for us. He was pretty good. But then we ran him out for the second one, trying to get a little cute again, which, again, like, makes me scratch my head and go, where was Trevor Williams? Why didn't we go to Trevor Williams if we're trying to get two out of Castro who we know can't do it? And that's the other thing that makes the Giants able to do this strategy and actually have a six-man bench and be able to manipulate all their hitting matchups because they have five starting pitchers, at least for most of the year, five or even six or seven at times, that can give them length. And just having that and knowing that and feeling comfortable with that, you don't really need to thread the needle with relievers like the Mets do seemingly every single night. Yeah, especially of late. It feels like we're trying to get everybody the absolute max out of them. And Castro, again... Just couldn't do it. We hate Castro for a seconding. We've been saying it all year. Mm-hmm. It just it just doesn't work. He can't sit down and come back. 
effectively. Maybe once or twice, but that's probably it out of the tens of times he's done it. And it was also just such a lock that Chris Bryant was going to do something amazing this series. That was so guaranteed coming in. Well, how about their home runs in this game? Because I think they hit, what, like four or five home runs in game one, I believe, and every single one of them was basically a wall scraper, Yeah. all of which that went over the new dimensions in San Francisco, San Francisco because as we know, that was historically very much a pitcher's park right now. They moved the fences in in center quite a bit and in right center triples alley, and maybe even a little bit in left. I'm not sure. I don't I don't know the exact changes that they made. I say probably not just because left field was never difficult to get the ball out of. So I'm sure okay. mostly it was in center field. I don't know exactly yeah. the, the ar- archaeological uh, developments that were made there, but definitely in center field. Historically hard park to hit in, especially if you're a left-handed hitter, almost like impossible, which is what makes Barry Bonds even crazier that he was hitting home runs there at the rate he was. Mm-hmm. But all their home runs just snuck over the fence, over the places that they moved them in. If this was a couple years ago, the Mets are catching fly balls at the warning track like it's nothing. Maybe the Mets front office, maybe Steve Cohen can take a look at what the Giants did with their outfield and be like, hey, we can move in the fences just a little bit because the Mets are having the same problem that the Giants used to have. It's a friggin' cemetery for hitters. But you know what's funny is that City Field's park factor is actually not that bad in terms of home runs. It's much worse in terms of just general hits. That's really the issue at City Field. I was honestly looking at the park factors today because I was, I was doing a little, little gambling. I have my gambling article that comes out every Wednesday early afternoon on Pitcher List. So I was trying to find some inefficiencies, as I like to do. And City Field's fine with home runs. It's not the issue with home runs. I'm telling you, it's the fucking apple, man. Our batter's eye is really screwed up. It's like multi-layered. You can get that little bit of the stem picking out, and it distracts the hitter's eye. That's part of it. I know it is. It's also weird wind, tun- wind tunnels off the water because City Field's like secretly off the water. Also, can you explain to the viewers who might not understand what park factors means? Because I have a feeling that there might be a couple people that aren't quite sure what you mean. Park factors basically means, well, all right. A number is assigned to every single major league ballpark in terms of its offensive environment. I don't know. It's the scale is from zero to 100, just like most of the other stats with numbers going over 100 for being above average. I don't know if 100 is exactly level, like the OPS plus and the stats like that. But basically, the higher it is, the better. And San Francisco ballpark is like somewhere in like the 90s. I think City Field's like somewhere around there now. And a place like Coors is like in the 120s. But on StatCast, within the park factors that have been aligned, every single type of play has its own factor per, per ballpark. Things like just hits. Doubles, walks, home runs, strikeouts, triples, especially. That's one is beefed up in San Francisco, like Comerica Park, because it's much easier to hit triples in places like that. City Field actually has the lowest triples park factor in the league, which I found interesting. And there's a lot of different analysts and a lot of different statisticians, different websites have their own. StatCast looks just the prettiest and it's the cleanest to sort, even though it's been proven not to be the most um, accurate. I know that Alex Chamberlain has developed his own. Andrew Perpetois has developed his own. And... It's interesting because every ballpark is unique and the offensive environment in, in each ballpark is different. And this kind of a way that I, as a fantasy baseball player, will try to like gain a little advantage in playing certain matchups here and there. But it's also something we should all realize because a stat like WRC+, something that makes it so great and so universal is that it neutralizes park factors around ballparks. But teams like the Mets and Giants, they're playing half their games in ballparks where the park factor is lower. I actually texted this to you today. It was kind of a brain blast that I had that... I feel like we shouldn't use that stat as a measure of teams that play in ballparks that are at the extremes. And that's why that Fangraphs tweet today about how the Mets are actually more of an average offensive team than a bad one because their WRC plus is like 17th in the league. 
you can't really say that because the Mets WRC plus at home is almost irrelevant, even though it's still awful because the Mets neutralized batting is terrific. But it just doesn't really work because even though we can't like score real runs, the fact that we might be able to score theoretical runs doesn't help because our ballpark still sucks and it always will. Yeah, exactly. It's like almost imaginary stat at this point for yeah. the Mets when they're playing at home, especially. That was a real statistical tangent. I Some listeners, if you like that, let me know. Some listeners, if you don't, also let me know because we haven't really done that in this show that much. No, we haven't done that too often. But just to jump back into this game for a second, the Mets had a slight, I'm not going to call an offensive explosion, like an offensive like blip, an offensive ripple. And right after the Giants got on the board here, actually, we took a lead for the first time when it felt like forever. And we broke our triples drought, our 69-game triples drought, the longest drought in the modern era of baseball. Literally the last 100 years of baseball, the 2021 Mets had the longest drought from triple to triple. Do you remember who the last Mets triple was hit by? I do because I remember them saying it, and it's our boy Billy Bombs, Billy McKinney. Billy McKinney. Who would have thought on this lineup that the guy would break up this drought is Pete Alonso. Definitely, yeah, but triples alley, man. Triples alley. Any, literally anybody can find a triple there. If Pete Alonso can get one, anybody can get one. Pete, I'm convinced, does not know how to slide. No. He has to do that thing that you do when you're like a tween or like an adolescent baseball player and you're starting to learn how to slide. You just got to go to the beach and just like dive in the sand. Yes. You just got to really get used to just getting in there and doing it. Because when Pete slid in that triple, he just like falls down three feet before the base and just like pops his head and just like shakes his whole body. Get him a slip and slide. Get him a slip and slide. Pete Alonso would have... Too much fun to slip and slide. I Listen, that might be something that the Mets need to do. Something to have a little fun with this team here. But we did get a little bit of a rally there. Pete with the triple. We got a sack fly by Dom Smith, who, by the way, I think that's probably all the production we're going to get from Dom for the rest of the year. Sacrifice flies because he just simply can't hit the ball very hard from what it looks like. It just doesn't come off his bat hard anymore. And the most shocking stat that I didn't even realize until watching this game Dom has 26 extra base hits on the year. 26? Yeah. I wouldn't have expected Dom to have at least 26 home runs. He should have 26 doubles to this point. 26 extra base hits total is awful. I'm pretty sure he had 35 last year in the shortened season. That's so bad. Like, oh my God, 26 extra base hits. If you wanted to find anything wrong with Dom right there, the power is just gone. Non-existent gone and while it was still a one-run game as we moved through the seventh and eighth innings it didn't feel great and then of course Trevor May came in the bottom of the seventh so it wasn't seventh eighth innings actually it was incorrect through the sixth and seventh innings Trevor May came in the bottom of the seventh gave up back-to-back home runs the only real no doubter home run yeah two back-to-back pitches I didn't even remember that god the only no doubter home run the second one of the game for Chris Bryant was annihilated to left field I heard like shades of the old home run derby that was there like 10 years ago the back 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 it was Gonzo. And then Jonathan VR, our second best power hitter on the team, he hit the two-run home run. The MLPD, MLB TV actually missed this home run. I didn't watch it live. It was still in commercial break, even though it was the second batter of the inning. But I, it, there was still no chance. Just what, what fucking ever at that point. Yeah, I mean, you got a nice nice piece on it. It is what it is. It made it 5-7, which ew, I even hate saying the score like that. It made 7-5 Giants, I should really be saying. But, like, it just, again, this is the feeling that I feel like I had a lot this series hopeless it just didn't feel like the Mets were ever going to have enough to come back from this game especially when they take a lead and it was immediately given back up the next inning punch in the gut punch in the gut Trevor May has that was his sixth earned run in his last two appearances it was again one of those like weird little medium leverage situations again for him (laughs) it was you're kind of right and Trevor May, like most other relievers in the league, it goes up and down, up and down, up and down. The play's going to oscillate. It's kind of something you have to be aware of with relievers. It's a way of the world. But 
Let's move on to game two, because this game yeah. was shockingly even more frustrating than game one. Yeah, no, Mets went quiet in the night, game one, at the end. Game two, Marcus Stroman, on the mound, he's our boy, he's been the second best pitcher on this team, obviously behind Jacob DeGrom, but as you said from the beginning of the season, probably the most important. Yes. We didn't think it was going to be because DeGrom goes down with an injury, we just thought he would be like that X factor, push us forward. Boy, did he pitch well again. So boy, well. is he so back. He has figured something out. It's clicked. He's probably fully healthy because he was dealing with those like little nagging injuries a bit. Mm-hmm. But he looked really, really good against this San Francisco Giants lineup that gives people some trouble. They they hit. They're a good offensive team. Definitely. And there was like a a, a legitimate adjustment that Marcus Stroman made ahead of this game. I've been really harping on his repertoire for most of the season and really trying to show everyone out there that when Marcus Stroman is throwing tons of sinkers, something is not really right. And you can kind of feel it when he has command of his off-speed pitches. And he really had command of his off-speed pitches in this game, especially that split change. That's just been like trickling and trickling and trickling and trickling up as he's gotten more and more comfortable with it. And he just annihilated the Giants with that pitch. It was the second highest percentage of split changes he has thrown in a game all season long. And it was only the third time all year that his sinker was not his most thrown pitch as the split change actually jumped ahead. And the first time the split change was the pitch that jumped ahead. The last two times were sliders. And both of those starts were in May. So it's been a long time since Marcus Stroman had featured the pitch that was not his sinker in an outing. And it was great. The slider and the splitter each had seven whiffs. And the slider actually had eight called strikes. It was good for a 50% call, uh, CSW rate, which is astronomically awesome. high. It's like That's like the stuff of the best pitchers in the league. He wound up with nine strikeouts and seven innings pitched. Through a season-high 114 pitches. He was really working out there. And he did give up another run in that seventh inning. But you can't say enough about what Marcus Stroman has done for this team, especially over these last three weeks, as we've been pretty aware that Jacob deGrom is not going to come back, most likely. And the Mets have just needed length and needed um, needed top-end production. The team has not gotten much of it. He's got 17 strikeouts his last two starts. He's had a 30% whiff rate now for three starts in a row. And he's just... So fucking good. I cannot say enough good things about Marcus Stroman this season. Yeah, I mean, if there were any doubts in Mets fans' head about if this guy should be back in New York Mets uniform for the future, I think they have completely gone to the wayside. This is a guy we have to make sure we bring back next year. I think 100%. We're not going to go crazy. We're not going to overpay, of course. We still need to be smart. If Marcus Stroman's asking for $35 million, I'm sorry, Marcus. I don't think you're going to get that from the Mets, but... If Marcus Stroman is looking for a very reasonable contract, which I think he probably will, and I think the Mets can definitely give it to him, he's got to be back. Whatever he wants, up to you know, good reason, he needs to be back on this team because really, we technically are still in it for all intents and purposes, but without him, we're definitely not even close. No, if something happened to Marcus Stroman, we could just close up the shop and head, head, hibernate for the winter. It would be literally all over. And that's why like, I love watching Marcus Stroman make these crazy plays off the mound. He did the athletic jeter. Just because yeah, sick play. Yeah, just because Jeter can't get the ball, so now we call that the Jeter when a guy makes a cool jump throw. But I just go, ah, don't get hurt. Fuck, shit, scared. And he got a single in this yeah, game. Yeah. He's running the bases. I'm like, oh, no, please be okay. Just if anything happened to Marcus Stroman, it would be a, an actual catastrophe. Oh, it'd be awful. We cannot handle Marcus Stroman going down. But that was kind of it for the good because the rest of the game was pretty bad. Awful. Terrible, actually. Logan Webb, you're a big fan. Big fan. You like Logan Webb. Love you texted me Webb. immediately that while the Mets hitting was abysmal mm-hmm. you pretty much felt like part of the reason why was also that logan webb is a very good pitcher better than we thought oh logan webb is great logan webb has his sinker is disgusting he's got multiple off-speed pitches that he works in 
He's kind of been like this like secret in the fantasy baseball community for a few years now because he's always been like good but hasn't really been able to like unlock his full potential. And the last six weeks he has. The guy's actually unhittable. The fact that Gaussman has gone down and Webb has gone up kind of also changes the giant ceiling in a way because if they can actually get both of those guys pitching well at the same time, they could win a playoff series against a good team. Like I don't I don't see why not. I don't see why the Giants with Logan Webb and Kevin Gaussman can't beat whoever wins the NL East. But like He's not fucking Justin Verlander. Like, there's no reason that Logan Webb should be out there annihilating people. You shouldn't, like, look incompetent against Logan Webb. You shouldn't not be able to touch the ball against Logan Webb. And the Mets couldn't touch the ball. They couldn't touch it at all. No, Mets offense was horrible. Absolutely terrible. And this was, I think, a big tipping point for not just me and you, but I think all Mets fans. I think that was the game that Mets fans watched and were like, yeah, this season's over. Like, this team just doesn't have it and I can't say I blame anyone for thinking that if you're a Mets fan and you don't have this deep information on Logan Webb and even like you said even with how good he has been still not this good no you see this performance against Logan Webb and the Giants who just on paper don't look like this team that's big and scary you're like how can we how can we win this division we have a we have a deficit right now how are we ever in the lead of this division I honestly I don't even know especially as the Braves and the Phillies play the Diamondbacks and the Marlins, he feels like now night in, night out the rest of the season. And we're stuck on the West Coast playing the best teams in the National League. It's painful. It's really painful. We go to the Giants every year to just have our season die. No, we really like. do. In 2019, when the Mets got really hot in July, we went out to San Francisco and completely croaked. We had that crazy game where we were down like 10 runs in the second inning and fought all the way back. And then Yaz had a big hit in either the 8th or the ninth or the 10th and ended it. And I even remember back in my youth, like back in like 2014, when the Mets had like starting to get like the, t- like the little tips, little hints of being a very good team. And we had a series out in San Francisco and the Giants crushed us. I pre- that was the last time we were actually swept in San Francisco, 2014. And this place has just become like, this, the Giants have become our boogeyman. AT&T Park, Oracle Park is our cemetery. Yeah, we don't even have to talk about what they've done to us also outside of AT&T Park. That is uh, going to be forgotten about. But no. the best shot came in the fourth inning here, and that's pretty much it. Conforto, like, low-key, kind of playing well. He's pretty hot with the bat right now. He's on-base percentage is about 500 in August. It's pretty good. Playing better. J.D. Davis, a little infield single. Longoria error, which was super weird. Also don't know how Conforto didn't score on this. Mm-mm. It was a little weird play. It was a chopper to Longoria. So the error wasn't on the hit. The error was on the throw um, to first base because he threw it away. And Conforto was on second. So on a chopper down the line, Longoria charging in, you'd think that Michael Conforto would have at least been a little more aggressive going to third. It's hard. It's really, really hard because in that scenario, you don't even know if he has a play on J.D. Davis, although J.D. Davis runs with cement in his cleats. So he's incredibly slow. You always have a play on him if you can get to the ball. But I think Conforto was probably worried about Longoria making like a fake throw to first and just backpicking him at second. Mm-hmm. So it was probably the right baseball play, but the Mets game was so bad that you were like trying to find anything to complain about. And that was definitely one thing that you could have. And then McNeil got into a double play when we seemingly got a, a nice break here. McNeil got into a double play and that's because he only hits ground balls. And I talked to you about this before the podcast. People have been a little hot and cold with McNeil this year little all over the place with how they're feeling about him. I'm still a McNeil guy. Pretty sure you are too. Definitely. But there definitely is an issue with how much he hits ground balls. And there's this weird in-between that McNeil's gotten stuck with where he either hits the ball on the ground and he's going to hit like 300 or close to it like he has in the past. 
or he hits the ball in the air and completely kind of gives up the average and gives up the consistency, but you might get a few more extra base hits, a few more home runs. But he hasn't been able to seem to find that middle. And against two teams like the Dodgers and the Giants, who are two of the most analytically sound teams in Major League Baseball, do a ton of shifting. You can see why Jeff McNeil went like one for 24 or 25 in the last two series. It's because you just simply can't get a hit against these teams hitting Mm -hmm. the ball on the ground. It just doesn't work. No, they're too smart. The infielders are always in the right place. And it seemed like there were a lot of really sharp ground balls that Jeff McNeil hit to the right side of the infield. And there was always somebody there to just knock it down, keep it in front of them, and be able to make a play. Especially because he can't run very well right now. No, it's, it's super tough for Jeff, especially against these teams, to have any sort of production when you're not hitting the ball in the air. Eighth inning. Pete Alonso, of course, as he has, he's been our best offensive player all year, mm-hmm. puts the team on his back as he's done all year, hits a home run to give us some life, gave us a shot, made it 3-2, so you're like, hey, maybe, but also in the back of our mind, we also knew, like, no. you're just making it a lot more painful and worse for us because this team's not going to come back. Unlucky. And then in this game, in the ninth, McNeil actually got a hit for us in the ninth inning, but it was so weird how he roped one to the outfield, it clanked off of Yastrzemski or Slater's glove, whatever it was, and somehow Lamont Wade was perfectly placed in left field right behind whoever was playing center, and it fell right into his glove and held us double from happening. Yeah, that was also in the crazy inning where Buster Posey like leapt out of his shin guards to grab the ball, that which would have been a wild pitch. Yeah, this was a tough thing. Fountain of youth over there. I don't know what they've right. got, what they're drinking. I would love for the Mets to get it. By the way, just keep this in mind. The injuries that the Giants have had compared to the injuries that the Mets have had and the age of the players that are on the Giants, I think they're the oldest team in Major League Baseball. They are, by a decent margin. Don't see a lot of uh, soft tissue injuries going on over there. Whatever they're doing hydration and stretching-wise, we need to copy it. And maybe this also goes into all the coaching that they have over there, too. Most coaches in baseball, as I said last episode, you can't really discount that seeing their success. You can't. Seeing Buster Posey move like that when James McCann in this game got scratched for back spasms, which again, like, oh my God, the injuries we get are phantom injuries here. So many like, not, I mean, it's all non-contact because it's baseball, but like these like weird fugazi injuries that go on. Fugazi. Fugazi. And then you see Buster Posey, who's 36 years old, moving as fast as a cat. You're like, how do we get this? And that at bat is also so annoying because the umpire was calling ridiculous strikes left and right. And Jonathan VR hit a ball a mile long foul it was just nothing could have gone right and really nothing went right this entire game this was as you alluded to before this felt like a nail in the coffin when this game ended at 1 15 in the morning i just sat there and kind of stared for a little while i couldn't even believe what was happening and there were just some insane stats that came out of this game first of all we have talked about the met struggles at the plate ad nauseum this entire season marcus stroman single and i believe it was the fourth or fifth inning of this game had the highest expected batting average of any ball put in play by the Mets. The highest. That can't happen. That can't happen with this lineup. There's no way that should even remotely be allowed. And another stat that was crazy, and this also ties in Stroman pitching against Logan Webb and just the way that the Mets bullpen, the Giants bullpens are constructed. There was not a pitch in this game thrown harder than 95 miles an hour. That's so, like, how does that even happen in modern baseball? I have no idea. I tweeted it because I was so shocked. And my boy, Mets Metrics, who I've mentioned a few times this podcast, everyone follow him. He's a great follow. Really knows his shit. I had him do a little query for me. And this was only the third time this has happened in baseball this season. That's crazy. Crazy. Modern baseball, no pitches over 95 miles an hour. It's like basically the average fastball velocity. It was probably a match between like Kyle Hendricks and somebody. No, or... Cubs haven't been. It has not been the Cubs. It was a game with the Angels and the Twins. And there was another one I forgot that he told me. Maybe the, yeah, It might have been the Rocky, Rockies D-backs games. maybe. So Randy Dobnak going up against somebody and 
Jay, whoever it's going to be. Jay Happ in the first half when he yeah, was still a member Jay of the Hap Twins. Too. My God. This was a hopeless game. This left a very, very bad feeling in every Mets fan's stomach. You talked about it. Felt like the nail in the coffin. And it led to me bringing up the Terry Collins video again because, God damn it, did this team need it. Listening to Pete's press conference after the game Awful. was so cringy, man. So cringy. I know we like said, like, oh, you guys came back and you, you fought. It's because they played the Nationals. I think we all kind of figured that out pretty quickly after mm-hmm. watching these last two series here. Pete kept the same thing. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. We're out here playing baseball. And I believe him that these guys are trying. I don't think anybody's dogging it by any means. We, Definitely We not. have to come out and say that every single time. I believe these guys are playing hard. I believe they're trying their best to win. They, they're pressing. It's obvious. It's clear and obvious. But the kumbaya stuff drives me fucking nuts. Awful. It drives me crazy because we're what? 120 games into the season now, 130, yeah. whatever it's going to be. This kumbaya shit ain't worked. We're a game below under 500 or or at 500, whatever it is. Something's got to change. Whatever's been going on there, I love that they have this chemistry, but fuck, damn it. It is just, it might be almost the demise, it feels like, of this team at times. That picture's been going around Twitter a lot the last few weeks, where it's the banner in City Field, and it says 2021, and then below it says everybody was really good friends. Yeah, and it's just like, it feels like they don't want to call each other out, which I don't want guys calling each other out. I think that's like ridiculous. That's too bad. Like, you shouldn't be calling out guys by names. But, like, damn, Pete, like, this is your chance, I feel like, to really step up and be that leader. Like, the Mets fans are dying for it. Just for you to be like, we played like shit. We need to play better. It's unacceptable how we're playing. We got to step the fuck up. And, like, that's it. Walk off and be a little pissed. Show a little emotion outside of, like, it's going to be okay. We're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. We're good players. We're trying. Like, Pete thinks, or at least made it sound like, they're just getting unlucky when we just know that isn't the case. That's why I kind of like Stroman's press conference. I feel like it was pretty raw and authentic, which is a welcome change from the way most of these guys speak to the media. Yeah, Stroman came out and said what? That like basically I'm tired of answering these questions. He just walked off. Yeah. Which is cool. I I like Marcus Stroman. He's a very authentic guy. And some people didn't like the way Marcus Stroman handled himself after the game, including one Tim Healy, who I will, um, I don't even know, I will nominate for one of the worst people I know. (laughs) Oh my god! He's so annoying. He's terrible. We should have been listening to Jason Vargas. Yeah, no. We I, who would have thought that Jason Vargas would have been so clairvoyant and calling out Tim Healy for this? That's a SAT word of the week. Also, bringing back the bad take of the week. We're we're doing some callbacks here in episode number forty-two. But Jason Vargas couldn't have been more right. This guy deserves to be punched in the face by a Mets player. <laughs> I've never seen Mets or any team's writers hate the team that they cover. So much. I mean, it feels like almost everybody outside of like Tacoma and Disha, and maybe I'm forgetting a few people. I apologize if I am, but those are the two that I see the most that don't seem to hate this team. Everybody else seems to try and find everything wrong and try to get under the player's skin and get like the worst headlines. What Tim Healy tweeted out and wrote an article on was so fucking stupid. I have the tweet if you want me to read it. Yeah, go for it. Give it to give it to the audience in case they don't know it because wow, you're gonna read and just be like, what a dick. So Tim Haley tweeted at 11.09 this morning on the, the beautiful day of August 18, 2021, Marcus Stroman's numbers last night, colon, seven innings, three runs, 114 pitches, nine retweets of personal highlights within 25 minutes of the game ending. For a professional writer who's paid to do what he does, that's a very clunky way to end a sentence. Very clunky. It's like, it just, it felt very unprofessional. It felt like TMZ was writing. It felt like maybe even a, a Barstool kind of article kind of thing. And Barstool doesn't even take shots at players. Barstool, that's like a big thing they don't do, is take shots at players. They'll take shots at teams. 
to take a shot at Marcus Stroman for being proud of a nice play he made, I feel like is just so, it's so ridiculous. It's so petty to take a shot at Stroman who played a friggin' amazing game. He, he can retweet all the stuff he wants when he plays like that. I don't give a shit. I don't think that's what it was because Marcus Stroman does that after most of his games. You know, he's always like very online. There's, I, and that that's what he does. Like it's part of his personality. It's not that it's a good or bad thing. It's just what, how he is. I think that Tim Healy took it personally that Marcus Stroman walked out of his interview because, of course, it's, it's Tim Healy's interview. It's not every reporter's interview. It's Tim Healy's interview. Yeah, well, I know for a fact now I've got a real good feeling. I don't know what happened after the game today and maybe because it's travel they don't do too much. But I got a feeling that there's not going to be a lot of guys answering Tim Healy questions the rest of the year. I know I wouldn't. I wouldn't do this for a lot of the beat writers in the Mets. If I was a player and Tim Healy's like, Tim Healy, uh, Newsday Sports, got a question for you. I would go, uh, next question, no comment. And I would just skip it. I would never give him a quote. Never. He's a, he's a fucking punk. He's an idiot. Everything you need to know about Tim Healy is in his banner picture on Twitter. It's a picture of Tim Tebow doing the interview in a Mets uniform and Tim Healy in the background making a stupid face. Why is that your picture, dude? You gotta move past Tim Tebow being a New York Met. Are you kidding me here? Get over yourself. It's probably his claim to fame. Is like, I, I once asked Tim Tebow a question and he didn't tell me to go fuck myself, so. It's too nice. <laughs> uh, it was so frustrating because it's like, Strowman is such a good guy and I know he gets on people's nerves, but you nitpicked him retweeting a play that was a phenomenal play that he made after he pitched his heart out. Great highlight. It, it was so petty. It was so petty. And really, as a reporter, you're supposed to report the news. You're supposed to be a little better than that. Mets beat writers stink. Outside of Tacoma and Disha, I feel pretty confident saying the rest of them are all garbage. Where's the decorum, right? Being a beat writer used to be like a really professional action. It's like it's a great profession. It used to be a way that fans... Children, people all over the war- country and the world can connect with these players because there used to be a time where we didn't really have as much exposure to them without social media and without color television and cable and shit like that. And I just wish that these guys would actually like appreciate the job they have. They travel with the Mets. No, they're not traveling this year, but traditionally they've traveled with their teams and talked about sports. Like, damn, that's so cool. Why aren't you treating this with a little bit more respect? Like, you're upset that Marcus Rome is retweeting highlights? Dude, Move the fuck on. And we should move the fuck on because there was a more important tweet this morning that came from Metzland. And it was from our fearless leader, Steve Cohen, who's very active online. The most active owner in probably in all sports? professional sports at this point. And he tweeted, 909 this morning, probably right after his coffee, right after he read the journal, just before the markets opened. It's hard to understand how professional hitters can be this unproductive. The best teams have a more disciplined approach. The slugging and OPS numbers don't lie, period. Tell me where he's wrong. I can't spot. I can't find the lie. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. I would say I loved it. I liked it. Well, yeah, I guess that's right. I don't love it because him tweeting it means that we're playing like shit. I hate that part. So you're right. I like what Steve Cohen said here. I've been asking for somebody to say something. And it doesn't seem like Rojas is going to. And it doesn't feel like probably any manager in modern baseball is really going to call out a team because you're just going to lose your clubhouse most likely. So Tony La Russa did with Yerman. That was pretty terrible. But I like it. I think it needed to be said just because it has been this bad. And it it's weird. I think a lot of people think that the players are going to be like, oh, I'm never going to play for Steve Cohen. He's going to call us out. But there's nothing that he said that shouldn't be said. All of it was true. I think if you're a player and you see that tweet and that makes you not want to be a Met, Play fucking better. I don't want you to be a Met. Yeah, I don't I don't want you on my team. There's no reason that an owner demanding excellence should shy players away. And that was a take that was coming out this morning. 
when on Wednesday morning about this tweet. I think that's fucking ridiculous. Players were coming from all over the country to sign with the Yankees when George Steinbrenner was saying, we don't win a World Series, the season's a failure. Like, I think that the right type of player will welcome expectations like that. Rise to the occasion. Pressure makes diamonds, as I've said before. I want players who want to win. Steve Cohen does not want to own a losing team. That's not what he's in this for. Steve Cohen seems like he doesn't lose very often. No, in fact, I would say he almost never loses. No. Steve Cohen crushed the proletariat class in January with uh, the whole Robin Hood <laughs> AMC uh, GameStop fiasco. This guy finds ways to win, and he probably is a little bit frustrated right now. And I don't think this is the best way for him to channel his frustrations. But, I mean, I don't know. I think worse things could have happened. We don't know what happened behind the scenes if he has tried this behind the scenes first. We also don't know exactly how Mets players felt about it. I'm sure they didn't love it, but... I don't know. Some players like a challenge. Maybe Kevin. that made Kevin Pillar respond to that. Who knows? Yeah, I, I'm wondering if there's anything to read into here, too, that we've talked about in the past weeks or so about this Mets team. Best teams have a more disciplined approach. Is this maybe a little insight into what he's thinking about the coaching staff? Is this a little insight to what he's thinking about the front office? You've talked about it to me, you know, through text off off the podcast recording. Is Sandy on the hot seat? Are they going to clear house? There's a lot of stuff that could happen with this Mets team because Steve Cohen might not be happy with what's going on. I think a big thing that we can glean from this is the fact that Steve Cohen's really into a couple different stats that he recently found on Baseball Savant. Whiff rate, OPS, and slugging, and slugging percentage. Maybe isolate slugging if he's really getting fancy. But it seems like you should probably leave the real statistical analysis to the statisticians who help to run this team. And maybe he should pull back a tiny bit. But again, I kind of agree with you that someone had to say something. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world that it was the guy who pays the checks. No. And you were hoping that would wake the bats up a little bit here. And it didn't at first. No, it didn't at um, all. Got, got really bad to start this game. I mean, we got a gift. gift. A gift from the baseball god said, here you go, Mets. The Giants have played seven days in a row or whatever nine. it is they've used. Nine days in nine. a row. Nine. That's, that's even more. Yes. They've played nine days in a row. They've been using their bullpen a ton. Tony Disco going to leave in the second. Here you go. Take it. You have to face bullpen guys that are tired and have been overworked. For eight innings. And nothing happened. Nothing. Before the ninth inning of this game, the Mets only had three hits. It was one from Alonzo, one from Nimmo, and one from VR. Three of the guys who have been hitting all year, basically. That's really all we can say about the beginning of this game from an offensive perspective, but I want to talk about my guy McGill because, again, he's good. I can't even imagine where this team would be without Tyler McGill. I, I really can't. I don't even, Dead want, last? I don't I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> I texted you today. The Mets are only five games ahead of the Rockies, which is the scariest thing. I get That, that was until the Mets won today. But that's the scariest thing I've seen ever. That's that's bad. I gave the Rockies a lot of crap for not trading at the deadline. The Mets aren't much farther, aren't that far away from them. No, but fucking McGill, dude, he just rips heaters like he always does. Sixty four percent of his pitches today were four seam fastballs, and it was more effective than it had been in his last handful of starts, getting nine whiffs and seven call strikes, which is a really cool development. And I mentioned last start against the Dodgers that it seems like the league had caught up to his changeup because it seems like nobody, this podcast included, was prepared for the devastating aura that pitch would have. And he just didn't throw very much. Only about 10% of his pitches today. So he's adjusting as the league's adjusting. He's smart, cerebral, and he understands what's going on. And the other just tiny thing I want to mention about McGill was that he mixed in a curveball today. Has not done that very much. He threw it four times, which that's not really that meaningful in terms of like a single start or in a vacuum. But like, if you look at the whole picture, the fact that Tyler McGill is still developing, he's still experimenting, he's still working, and he's trying to outsmart teams before they outsmart him, especially a team like the Giants who are in the running for smartest team in baseball. 
you just love to see that. And I really think we might have a legitimate piece here in Tyler McGill. The thing I love about Tyler McGill, it's up here, his head. He's got all he's got the talent on the field for sure. But one thing that's really, really hard to teach, as we've seen with some Mets pitchers in the past, is the mental side of the game. He had adversity today. He had a tough inning in the third, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. He, he ran into a little bit of trouble. And he got out of it with only one run. He made a nice play, hit right back to him. He looked the guy at third, looked the guy at second, kept him there, threw it over to the first, and then got out of the inning with only one run. He has the ability, but of course you're going to get hit sometimes. There's going to be adversity. But he's able to get through that. He has the confidence. He doesn't get get down. He has good body language, and he believes in his stuff, as he should, because the stuff is good. I'm super confident with this guy on the mound. I can't believe that nobody seemingly knew that he was going to even make an impact this year. Nobody. Nobody was talking about this guy. And he's been a lifesaver for this team, an absolute lifesaver. And he was so good again today with six innings, one and run. He kept us in a game that we truly shouldn't have been. When we had such anemic offense, we should have lost this game. It shouldn't have been even close. But somehow Tyler McGill was like, nah, I got you. Let's do it. No, he saved us. He put us on his back as he's done a lot during this cold streak. And that fact that he has taken multiple bad, not bad, just not good starts in a row. And now seemed like he might be coming out of it. That's so mentally tough for a kid like this. I say kid. I think he's literally, he's literally outraged. But he's a kid in terms of Major League Baseball age. And I'm happy about it. And that was the only thing to talk about in this game until we reached the ninth inning. The ninth inning was interesting. Yeah. We got to start off with Pete Alonso getting drilled in the elbow. And I didn't maybe coming for Pete because he seemingly was in so much pain that he couldn't even put on the oven mitt over his hand. He was trying to do it. And you, you could tell he, like, didn't want to touch his hand at all because he got hit in the elbow, even on the elbow pad, which is crazy. But it must have hit the funny bone or something. Pete was in pain. He's a gamer. He's not going to come out of the game. Mm-hmm. I saw him even say to the trainer, like, I'm not coming out. So And x-rays were negative, so hopefully we'll okay, avoid Nielsen, which would be just catastrophic. Yeah, no, that would be catastrophic. So hopefully Pete's all right. If not, I'm guessing Dom's playing first base. But Pete gets us started. First base, there we go. And then Conforto hits a single, moves Pete to third, first and third. Nobody out, one out? Nobody I don't out. remember. Nobody out. And we got a sacrifice fly from J.D. Davis. Now, I wish he did a little bit more. I wish we got an extra base hit, but hey, I'm not going to get greedy here. We got our 15th sack fly of the year. No, we got the 1971 Padres in the crosshairs right now. Only four away from the from the fewest sack flies in Major League Baseball history. We have to do that. This Mets team can't go in the record books for the fewest sack flies in the history of baseball. I will not let it happen. It can't. It won't. No, I think I think we're going to be okay. I think so. 15th sack fly, JD got us the run in, ties the ball game at one apiece. And then there was an interesting decision in the ninth inning here. Mm-hmm. One out, because of course the JD sack fly, Conforto's on first base. It's a 3-2 count to Dom, who'd been having a... He's been fighting against Jake McGee, who only throws fastballs, which is shocking to me from a baseball standpoint that he only throws 93, only throws fastballs, and some having a great year. Incredible command. And Gary and Ron in the booth were talking about, you got to send Conforto here, right? 3-2, Dom's not swinging and missing. Got to make something happen. Going to send Conforto. They did not. Dom hit a uh, little hard ground ball up the middle. Brandon Crawford, because he haunts me. He, he lives in my head. Makes a sick play up the middle. Diving glove flip, looking as if he's 22 years old again. And it wasn't a double play, but it stopped a first and third situation. Mm-hmm. First and second situation with only one out. Changed the whole outcome out of that inning. I wanted to know your opinion. Do you think that the Mets should have ran uh, Conforto? Because I think they should have. I don't really know, just because the Mets had so few base runners this game. I don't know if I want to risk the one I have in a tie ball game when Michael Conforto represents the go-ahead run in that situation. I understand fully if you would have, just because Dom had fouled a couple pitches off and Conforto had been going a couple of times in that bat. So 
I don't know. It's a touch and field thing. Michael Ford also has not attempted the stolen base this year. And um, Puz- I don't think Posey was in the game yet at this point. He pinched it later or not? I don't remember. I don't remember either. But I I don't know. I don't feel that. A strike him, I throw him out to all play. It's just been so quintessential 20, 2021 Mets. And it's not that the Mets lineup is deep or long in any way, shape, or form. Jonathan VR was on deck, and then the black hole began after that. So I don't know what could have happened, but I'm fine with just keeping a man on first base, especially with the, like, as we've talked about, Triple's Alley. If you could put anything in the gap against Jake McGee, you want Malcolm Ford on first base because you will take the lead. So I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I felt like he should have been running. It would have changed the outcome of the inning there. But again, a little Monday morning quarterback. He, hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. He could have swung and missed, throw him out, strike him out, throw him out. Inning's over, 2021 Mets. But... Luckily, the Mets double switched for Edwin Diaz going into the ninth, and Edwin Diaz was filthy, disgusting. Was it seven pitches in the first inning? Yeah, ninth inning. But yeah, the first thing he pitched, he two outs on two pitches. Yeah, which was awesome. Edwin was just attacking mm-hmm. the zone, going after guys, and he was fantastic. Which brought us to the tenth inning. Hey, just another another shout out to that rich asshole who I sat in front of on Friday night, who said Edwin Diaz was awful and he should be off this team. Just shut shut the fuck up. You have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know where this team would be if not for Edwin Diaz this year. He's actually an elite closer. He is. And any Mets fan who can't understand that just has to. They have to. It's there's no there's no more of this bullshit with Edwin Diaz. And then he came out for the tenth because the Mets kind of went down pretty easy right in the 10th yeah uh did they no well we should talk about the 10th because Patrick Mazika led off with Jonathan VR in second base and he just like bunted an exit velocity of 115 and Jonathan VR took off for at first uh, first glance and he was a dead fucking duck sitting at third base yeah Jonathan VR we talked about this in some way earlier episodes what do we, what's his nickname I forget it uh Caballero Loco Caballero Loco the crazy cowboy crazy horse whoever he is he's just possibly one of the worst base runners we've ever seen. History of baseball. He just he can't read the ball, has no clue what happens when someone tries to pick him off. He got picked off in this game by the left-handed pitcher, whoever it was. He didn't even move. He just stood there and was like, ah, oh, shit, you got me. Like, he had no clue that he was even coming to first. Bad base ring by him. Also, interesting decision by the Mets to, pin, or to bunt as the away team to take a one-run lead. So stupid. I couldn't even imagine giving up an out in that situation. But I also have one more funny stat about Jonathan VR. comes from my, my friend who I mentioned before, Mets Metrics. If you add Jonathan Villar's pickoffs into his stolen base success rate, it is under 50%. That's horrible. So bad. It's so That's terrible. That's like one of the worst ever. It's really bad. Think about that that extra inning game in Miami where he was picked off third from Adam Simber. I can't even remember the last time someone got picked off third ever. Ever for that. No, besides Jonathan Villar. I feel like he's like the last yeah. three pickoff of thirds in like Major League Baseball. So yeah, that kind of killed the inning because there goes our guy in runner in scoring position. Go to the top, bottom of the 10th here. Edwin comes out for a second inning. Well, I was a little more, you know, tight in this inning. Still able to get out of it pretty clean. Yeah, I mean, Edwin Diaz throws so hard, and he uses the top of the zone so much that whenever you make contact, the ball's basically going to the warning track. And Buster Posey hit the ball to the warning track, and I think the first or second pitch of that inning. And that sent Mike Yastrzemski from second to third base with one out. And he just bared down. He got out of it, man. He got Lamont Wade to pop up, and then... It was Longoria. Longoria got... Well, I just remember seeing the pitch that Edwin threw to Longoria that hit him in the hand, and he swung. And I was like, that's crazy. It was literally on his thumb. So he caught bat, I believe, but it was gross. The play-by-play here doesn't matter. Edwin bared down. He got out of it. He got us to the 11th inning. It's shocking that neither team's going to score the run this first extra inning. 
And we got the 11th in the Mets actually did score a run because Michael Conforto laced a double. The hottest hitter on the team if Pete Alonso doesn't play tomorrow. No, it was nice to see Conforto swing the bat better, looking a little more Michael Conforto-ish. I'm still not happy with his bats, but the production is still better right now than we've seen all year from him. Hitting the ball hard, getting on base. And then, of course, just because... With the Mets, Tommy Lastella matched in the ninth inning immediately. First batter. Off of 11th, I mean. Yeah, who gives up a run every time he touches the mound now, it feels like, or at least puts base runners on. And then we came to the 12th inning. And I don't know if this was like um, divine intervention or the kinship of all living things, but the Mets offense woke up for the first time in two weeks. Well, let's talk about first the absolute, like, you called it performance art on Twitter. It was poetry <laughs> in motion, what was happening in this game. VR leads off the inning. We can't forget this. And <laughs> yeah. ropes what seems to be a double down the line. Called fair on the field, double, met score, go-ahead run. Everyone's pumped. Psych. The ball was about a foot foul. Not a foot. An which, inch. An inch foul, which also, by the way, I like the call by the umpire. Anything close, you should call it fair so that the play can happen, and then mm-hmm. you can always reverse it. But an inch foul restarted Jonathan VR strikes out. Of course. And you're like, oh, <laughs> here we go again. The friggin' Mets. We lit- I think Gary and Ron were even like... This team needs it, but like they really needed that double, like <laughs> really, more really. than ever. And then, shockingly, a callback to April. Kevin Pillar from the clouds hit a home run for the first time since that wicked football game in Cincinnati a month ago. And it's worth noting that Pillar got robbed of an extra base hit earlier in the game, where Lamont Wade Jr. made a sick catch in left field, <laughs> crashing into the wall. It was like everything that could have gone wrong, wrong for the Mets in this game was happening. But Pilar, man, a three-run home run. Who who saw that coming? Not me. Definitely not me. You you couldn't have given me as many chances in the world to bet Kevin Pilar to hit a home run in this series. I never would have done it. He did it in the biggest moment of the game. I've been calling for Kevin Pilar's head on a stake. As you should have. He's been awful. <laughs> Terrible. But he got a huge home run here. Gary's like, back in San Francisco. Gary, for some reason, I feel like, thinks like Kevin Pilar is this great San Francisco giant <laughs> and doesn't realize that he was there for about, what, 40 games? Like... Not even 20 games. I'm telling you, I said it like a month ago. There's a like a, a Kevin Pillar barometer, and the difference point is people over 45 years of age. If you're over 45, you love Kevin Pillar. And if you're under, you're like, this guy's awful. It's just it. That, it's like <laughs> such a clear divide. It's not even funny. So, you know, it is what it is. We got, we got those runs. That was huge. It was nice. And then Francisco. Welcome to the New York Mets. Francisco, Francisco. We need to get them in the lineup at the same time. Former first round um, pick. Because McCann is hurt. He was on crutches today, apparently, <laughs> which, like, that's not funny. But, and neither, like, neither's on the IL. Yeah, like, this isn't funny, but, like, kind of you funny. can laugh at the comedy of that. James McCann was randomly scratched in game two, no info, and then today he shows up at the park with crutches. You can't make it up. You literally can't. But Chance Cisco, nice double. That got us another run, I think, too, to make it 6-2. to two. Yeah, That was really good because even if the Giants had a grand slam then, the game would still just be tied. Yes, which we know could have happened, Definitely. knowing the Mets. Could have happened, but luckily for us, Jake Reed. Jake Reed, the weirdest throw I've ever seen. His, like, short-arm, side-arm thing. Gary said it really well. It looks like a guy doing slow-pitch softball, like or fast-pitch softball. Dude, it looks like Philip Rivers. <laughs> it does look like Philip Rivers. That's even better. But yeah, Jake Reed, nice clean inning. This guy has been good in two appearances so far for the Mets. And the Mets win. I don't know how, but the Mets win this game. I don't know how either. Didn't feel I was delirious at the end of this game. We needed to like take an hour between the end of the game and the start of the podcast because I couldn't even see straight. I was exhausted. I was tired. I didn't want to think about baseball for a good hour after that game happened because even though that was a great way to end the series, I can't forget what happened before it, and I can't forget what's coming next, which is the Dodgers. But before we talk about the Dodgers... 
We have a prospect interview to give you guys. Last week during the midweek episode, we gave you Jalen Palmer interview. Today, we've got a very special one, Ronnie Mauricio. Number two prospect in the Mets organization? I'd say so. Number two prospect in the Mets organization, shortstop for the Brooklyn Cyclones. Very much hyped, the top 50 prospect in Major League Baseball. We got him. We're interviewing him. We're going to cut to that here in a second, so hopefully you guys enjoy it. Next week is going to be Francisco Alvarez, so don't miss it that one. But Ronnie Mauricio gave us a great interview. Hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back after the interview with the Dodgers preview. All right, Mets Up listeners, we're back here, and we have a pretty awesome interview coming at you. We are talking to Mets top prospect Ronnie Mauricio of the Brooklyn Cyclones. Going to ask him a few questions, how the season's going, and get to know Ronnie a little bit more. All right, so first question, uh, Ronnie, how's it been being in New York? You know, come from the Dominican Republic. What's it like to live in New York as a, you know, young kid? Cuéntanos cómo se siente la vida en New York viviendo en la República Dominicana. Oh, pero es una vida... Una vida buena aquí, de verdad que sí, se siente bien estar en la ciudad, la ciudad que no duerme, o sea, es bien estar aquí. He says, uh, it's a good life being here in New York City, the city that never sleeps, it's a great life, it's a great life. And how, how does New York compare to Florida, from St. Lucie? Eh, ¿Cómo este New York se compara con Florida, con St. Lucie? Nunca, nunca se puede comparar porque es que esta ciudad es demasiado buena en St. Lucie, no... Ah. See, it, there's no comparison. This, this, uh, you know, the city's amazing. St. Lucie just can't keep up, basically. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite thing to do in the city so far when you're not playing baseball? ¿Cuál es tu cosa favorita hacer en la ciudad cuando no estás jugando béisbol? Bueno, me gusta salir a comer mucho, a restaurante. Me gustaría caminar también a Manhattan, a Square. He likes to go eat uh, out, out to eat a lot in restaurants, and you know, loves to walk around in Manhattan and Times Square and stuff like that. Yeah. All right. So Ronnie was wondering, you know, you've had a big power surge this year. Has there been anything that you've changed in your game that you think has helped lead to this power? Ah, mira, Ronnie, estás pegando mucho más horrones recientemente. Este, has hecho algún cambio tu juego para este poder, para que salga este poder? No, yo creo que ese poder todo el tiempo ha estado ahí. Solamente que me faltaba un poco echar un poco más de, de libra y creo que la eché ahora y ahora está saliendo el he thinks the power has always been there uh, he just needed to put on some weight right and you know he put that up and now the power is just showing more and more probably helps with all the good restaurants in New York get the, get the weight and the power yeah so bouncing off that who were some of your favorite players growing up and who do you think you model your game after if anybody cuáles son tus jugadores favoritos creciendo y a quién usas como ejemplo a seguir para tu juego bueno creciendo mi jugador favorito es José Reyes, todo el tiempo lo ha sido, todo el tiempo lo ha sido. Oh, me gustaría jugar siempre como Javier Baez. Ah, okay, yeah, so you guys heard that José Reyes is his favorite, of course, and he would like to model himself after Javi. Creo que los dos se parecen en la forma de, de jugar, porque juegan siempre con mucha chispa, mucho ánimo y energía. So he thinks they both have a very similar style of play. They play with a lot of swag, a lot of emotions, right? So, you know, that's, that's what he thinks. This year you got to participate in Major League Camp during spring training work next to Francisco Lindor and other major leaguers what was that experience like como este fue este poder participar en el training camp con grandes ligas como este Francisco Lindor y todos ellos oh es una experiencia muy buena de verdad se aprende mucho con esos grandes ligas que tienen mucha experiencia ya en grandes ligas 
y que saben mucho del juego, saben cómo, qué pasa y todo eso y uno puede aprender mucho con ellos. So you learn a lot. It's a tremendous experience being able to play alongside people with um with that experience and that know the game so well. Again, you, like you get to learn a lot just by watching them playing with them in general. Sticking with your game. What do you think is your best tool as a player? What's the number one thing that Ronnie Mauricio offers his team? ¿Cuál es tu este herramienta más valioso como pelotero? Ah, uh, creo que mi bate. Bateando. His bat. We saw you taking some fly balls earlier uh, during practice. Have you been like working on outfield at all or sticking to shortstop still? Sí, te vimos este, en, en práctica está atajando fly balls, ¿verdad? Y estás practicando para outfielder o te quieres quedar en shortstop? No, eh, no, me quiero quedar en el shortstop, obviamente, claro. Uh, solamente eso es para divertirse y coger fly en el BP en la práctica. He obviously wants to stay at shortstop, right? But, you know, he likes uh, shagging fly balls just to have fun out there yeah. during the warm-ups, yeah? Also, Playing next to the beach, it gets very windy here. Do you notice that when you hit, especially like between playing in Brooklyn and playing on the road? Entonces jugando aquí enfrente de la playa, verdad, y está entrando la brisa desde el mar y cosas así, verdad. Acaso sientes eso cuando estás bateando y pegando la pelota? Ah, realmente no es que se siente, sino que pasa. Pero sí, la brisa aquí es muy incómodo, el play es un poco incómodo porque la la bola sí como que no corren cuando tú golpeas la bola, o sea que so he says, you know, uh, you know, playing here can sometimes get a little, you know, off, a little odd because, like, you know, it's not like you're feeling the wind necessarily, right? But sometimes the ball just happens to die. The ball doesn't fly much here, right? So, you know, it's definitely something to get used to. Your Instagram, El Chimi. What's the reason behind? Is that a nickname? What's the deal sí, with that? Sí, porque te dicen El Chimi. Oh, ese es un nombre que salió cuando yo jugaba pelota más pequeño. Mm -hmm. Tenía como 13 años cuando me pusieron ese ese apodo. Mm -hmm. Fue donde donde yo practicaba en la academia me pusieron así porque me parecía un, a un coach que lo llamaban así también. Ah, ok, ok, ok. Entonces el coach le decían el chimi. Le, dicen, le decían chimi cui. Ajá, y me pusieron a mí así. Ah, porque te parecías al coach. Ok, so uh, that was a nickname he was given when he was like around 13, uh, you know, playing in one of the academies and whatnot. And uh, they noticed that, so there's this coach in one of those academies that they, that they would call him chimi, right? And apparently Ronnie bears a resemblance to him and they would call, now they call him el chimi. That was really cool. All right, this last question we got for you, Ronnie. Thanks again again for talking to us man really cool of you what was the first thing that you bought with your signing bonus when you got picked up by the Mets what was the first thing that you bought with the bonus when you signed oh the first thing was my guagua a Range Rover a Runner a 4 Runner I bought one time a Toyota 4 Runner yes Toyota 4 Runner yeah yeah I got a nice set of wheels right there alright man now we're done you can plug any social media you have right there so our uh, viewers can follow you Instagram, Twitter anything you want mira dile a tus fanáticos este donde te pueden seguir en las redes sociales, este el username y dónde te pueden seguir. Ah, uh, me pueden seguir en Instagram como el Chimi, el rayita abajo Chimis 4, ajá. Y en Twitter me pueden seguir como Ronnie Mauricio. So on Instagram you can follow him el Chimi E L underscore C H I I M I 4, right? And of course, you know, Ronnie Mauricio on Twitter as well. Thank you Ronnie again for the interview. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for watching and we'll see you on the next episode. So yeah, Ronnie Mauricio. I did. We thought that there was a chance Ronnie was not going to talk to us. He was High a little chance. shy, a little shy. We were told by the Brooklyn Cyclones guy too that Ronnie's a little tough sometimes. You just it depends what kind of mood he's in. And from what we saw, he was sitting in the dugout on his phone a lot, like before the game was started. And we're like, yeah, there's just no chance Ronnie's talking to us. We completely changed the questions we were going to yeah. ask too, in case he did take it. And luckily, Ronnie just walked right up to us and was ready to go. And we had a great interview with Ronnie, like you heard. So big shout out to him for doing that. 
I know I was super impressed with what he had to say. And he really did kind of like relax too as the interview went on, which was nice. Dude, definitely. And I don't think he was shy at all when we actually started talking to him. I cracked that joke about the restaurants and he really seemed to warm up. And our good friend, trusty translator, Ernie, they spoke very good Spanish to each other, even though they hail from different countries. And everything worked out just shockingly well in that interview with Ronnie Mauricio. I was very happy about it. Yes, it was awesome. Also, huge shout out, like James just said, to our friend Ernie at subtape underscore on Twitter. He's a Marlins fan, so that doesn't really help you guys as Mets fans, but he is the guy who's doing the translating for us in these interviews live. Good friend of ours. He'd appreciate it if you dropped a follow. We'd appreciate it if you dropped him a follow as well. Help support the podcast. He's probably going to be our translator for the rest of the time on this thing, <laughs> if I had to guess. So, Ernie, thank you so much for that. Couldn't do this without you. Now, to go to the next section here, let's talk about this Dodgers preview because luckily we're not on a six-game losing streak, No, but we have potential to get right back on one here against the Dodgers. Yeah, it almost was. It was pretty close to being one. Luckily, the Dodgers pitching staff is kind of in flux right now, so on Thursday night, we might get a gift, and it'll be like, I don't even know, maybe possibly a bullpen day or something of that nature, because no one's named currently, because this would be Julio Urias' spot, but he has hit the IL because Tyler McGill, our, our clutch man right there, just beans him in the calf. He was thinking ahead. Just thinking ahead, Pl- yeah. Playing the long game there. Love that, Tyler. But So we got Taiwan versus uh, question mark tomorrow. Carlos Carrasco on Friday night versus Walker Bueller. Rich Hill on Saturday versus Max Scherzer. And a winnable game on Sunday with Marcus Stroman versus the corpse of David Price. Tony Gonsolin healthy? Could he maybe Not be a healthy. guy who pitches on Thursday? On the IL, shoulder okay. fatigue. They had they played. Okay. Mitch White pitched earlier this week, and Andre Jackson made his major league debut earlier this week. So I don't know who they're going to find for this game, but it'll be it'll probably be someone really good who we can't hit. Yeah, I also feel like recently when we got into Los Angeles, we have been getting shelled as well. Yeah. Like I feel like the last good game I remember there, like outside like the playoff run, was when Syndergaard hit a couple of home runs. But oh, dude, that was twenty fifteen. Los Angeles, that was twenty fifteen. Yes. Oh my God, that feels like it was only a couple years ago. Oh my gosh, I'm living in the past. It might have been 2016. Regardless, when we do this West Coast trip, it is always hell. And it's just even worse that these teams are both also awesome now. So it's not going to be an easy series by any means. Four game series... Let's. Let, I'd like to win it, but am I gonna? Are we going to? The way this offense is, no. We're basically facing two pitchers who we should really, really beat between Mystery Man tomorrow night. Who actually? Hold on. Fangrass has a different schedule than ESPN. Fangrass has Walker Bueller pitching on Thursday night. Scherzer Friday. Our our good friend Justin Brule as the opener on Saturday ahead of a bullpen game, and then Price on Sunday. If I were the Dodgers, I would definitely try to split up Brule and Price just because. I feel like both of those games, the bullpen will be taxed. So I'd rather have those be on Thursday and Sunday so I can make sure my bullpen survives because we know Walker Bueller and Max Scherzer are going to throw seven strong. There's no way the Mets can hit those guys. There's no chance. That's all Walker Bueller does is throw seven innings strong. He's got six innings every start this year. He's an absolute fucking Iron Man. He's one of the most underrated players in all of baseball. So I guess the Dodgers' schedule is in question. But we're going to face two hitable pitchers or just two days of mostly the Dodgers' bullpen. So I hope we can win those two games. I pray that we can win those two games. And winning those two games would actually mean that we're not completely dead. We'll have retained our 500 record and probably still be within five games with 35 to go, which I guess is a win at this point. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know if it's the the West Coast and the 945, 10 o'clock starts, but I am exhausted. (laughs) There's something different about watching a baseball game that starts at 10 o'clock. Yeah. Like, I'm up until 2 o'clock every single night, as you know, as my old roommate. 
those games when they were over, I was like, I gotta go to bed. I'm tired. Like, I just I can't even get up off this couch. The West Coast just tires me out different than anything ever before. It's because like when the games end at ten, like your night is still active there. You can still like pour a drink, watch something on TV, play a video game. Things are still happening. When it's one o'clock and your things the things have ended, what can you do now? Like I feel like a dirtbag if I like watch a movie at one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> that is a little late. <laughs> Exhausting. This West Coast trip is almost over. The nightmare is almost over. I can't wait for it to be over. And it would be nice if we end on a good a good note. Will we? Probably not. Nah. I hate to be that guy. It's just unrealistic at this point to think that this Mets team with this lineup and the anemic offense is going to be able to really compete with the Los Angeles Dodgers, as you said in the last episode. You compare the two lineups and you go, how can we score more runs than this team? It just doesn't make sense. I have no idea how it could be possible. I really don't. No clue. But we're going to watch. I'll watch. You know to find us here too, episode 43. We'll go over the Dodgers series as we always do. So make sure you are listening us or listening to us and following us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, Messed Up Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Messed Up. James, I know, has a little shout out here for someone a uh, little local that he wants to give a little quick plug to. I do. Before the game I went to last Friday, I forgot to shout these guys out in the last episode, so I apologize, but... My dad and I went to a pork store in my neighborhood in East Williamsburg on Graham, Emily's Pork Store. And I say pork store because this is not a deli. This was a pork store. There were shanks of meat hanging from the sky. The refrigerator that you opened up to get drinks was actually the refrigerator where most of the meat stood. My dad said there were Italian like drinks and snacks and weird anastasis that he hadn't seen since he was a literal child. My dad and this, the man who was working the counter, lived blocks away from each other in Brooklyn, the neighborhood, as they said, growing up. They bowled in the same place in their early 30s. And the sandwiches were unbelievable. So Emily's Pork Store on Graham Avenue in East Williamsburg. If anyone lives local in New York City, check it out. It's worth the ride. It's a real old school spot. You feel like you're in the 1970s when you walk inside. The sandwiches are phenomenal. The chicken cutlets are grilled to perfection. The hot peppers are delicious. There's Give them a shot. They're a wonderful place. Yes. I, I think I'm going to have to come by. I saw on the Google review pictures, uh, it says, we've got guanciale, which you, <laughs> like you said to me when I said, you're like, that's not an advertisement. That's a brag. hundred percent. I don't think many people in the world still have guanciale. So shout out to Emily's pork store. They also, did, is this where you put up a sticker as well? I did. Well, I talked to these guys for like 20 minutes. They love the Mets. They love the Jets. They have memorabilia all over the store. The guy was showing off this bat that he bought for $25 on the street, a game used bat from 1986. He said, I'm sure some crackhead stole it. <laughs> But they're they're the homies. Messed up sticker on the front door. So if you go by, say you're a listener, say what's up, say you love the Mets. Yeah, let them know that uh, the Mets Up podcast sent you over there if you go there. Also, shout out to everybody on Twitter who's been finding our stickers all around the city. We've been placing them in different locations, not just in New York, but even New Jersey and all over the place. So if you ever see them, make sure you tweet us at Mets Up, or you can tweet me or James, Draftneck Mark Jeter had no range, whichever one. But I appreciate everybody tweeting that at us when you find it. It's really cool to see that you guys are finding our logos and stuff everywhere. Also, remember, you want to win this Marcus Stroman card that I got here. It's like a game-worn jersey. We're doing a little incentive here. Make sure you go on to Apple Podcasts, rate our podcast five stars. We'd appreciate it if that's what you actually feel. Give it a good rating, as well as drop us a review. We're at 80 reviews or ratings right now. We get to 100. Check the messed up Twitter. We will be giving away this Stroman card once it hits 100. So do that as well. A little incentive to get you guys to rate and review us. Otherwise, I think that's where we're going to wrap it up here for the episode number 24 of the Mets Up Pod. 24? My God. I I screwed up because I said the Mets Up. It was weird. Didn't like it. 
This is where we're going to wrap up episode number 42 of the Met Stuff Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for watching. Lengthy outro, but we'll talk to you next time for the Dodgers series. Peace out. Thanks for listening, guys.